Jesus chose to despise worldly accolades and wealth so that he could, I think, be open to what God had for him. Because if we fill our stuff with, you know, acclaim and fame and celebrity and money and make those our gods, we leave no room for God inside of us. So we emptied ourselves of all those things in the world that tempt us to find our esteem in them. But if we do like Jesus, if we empty ourselves of these things, we'll be open to the life of God. That was Marlena Graves, and this is the Things Above podcast. Today's guest for Things Above conversation is Marlena Graves. She is a writer and adjunct professor. She studied at Northern Seminary and the Renovar Institute. And she's written for Christianity Today and is the author of two books, A Beautiful Disaster, and the book that I will be talking with her about today, The Way Up is Down. Marlena and her husband and three daughters live in Toledo, Ohio. Marlena, welcome to the Things Above podcast. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. Wonderful. Well, today, as I said, we're going to talk about your, it is your latest book, right? The Way Up is Down. You haven't written one since. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So we're going to talk about that book, The Way Up is Down, which I loved. It's so good. Um, and I'm going to begin with the question I ask every guest who's written a book. Why did you write this book? Okay. Uh, thank you. I did have an Enneagram 9 book that came out right after that, but they were so close together. Um, but The Way Up is Down, I wrote it because some of the, you know, the same things that are happening now. I started it in 2017. And I was just, I mean, it sounds va- rather harsh, but I was disgusted with some of the American church leaders and how it seemed that there was more care about image, money, power, and the people that were, the people that are searching for Christ that are asking genuine questions either within the church or outside of it do not often see the image of Christ portrayed. And I would say in the media. And so I was wondering to myself, how might Jesus live if he were alive right now? What kind of issues Hmm. um, might he consider? And of course it's through my own interpretation, of course, but that's why I, um, I, you know, I felt like the church was on life support and I was like, why, why is the church on life support? And I think it's because we're getting away from the way of Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, it has been a tumultuous season. So, so basically you thought, look, here's the, here's the person of Christ, the way of Christ, um, which was, is about kenosis and servanthood and which we'll talk about. And so essentially, if I understand, Marlena, you, you, you said, gosh, I just needed to write this book um, because I, I didn't feel the church was responding. Is that close? Yeah, I, I didn't feel like we were uh, imaging Christ in our, imaging. Okay. The, in our yeah. posture and behavior the way he was, like self-sacrificial mm-hmm. and lowering himself. Instead of seeking the highest place, he sought the lowest place. And I wanted to articulate and flesh out what that meant. Yeah, I mean, of course, that's always been a challenge for the church, you know, regardless. I mean, every decade, I think, in my lifetime, the church has struggled. But in particular, it has been a challenging, challenging season. 
So in the opening chapter, you quote the old Willie Nelson song, Always On My Mind. I think your dad sang it a lot. Um, and you connect that with the desire to have God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, always on our minds, which is a huge theme of this podcast. You know, it's called to say, you know, things above, to set our minds on things above, where we set our minds. Tell the story about that song and what your longing was to have God on your mind. Yeah, so my dad would always sing it in like really bad key, <laughs> but he was joking. You know, he would just sing it to the kids. You know, you're always on my mind. And when I wrote that, it just came back to me, you know, when I was young, um, because I grew up in American poverty, I would, you know, read the Bible two to four hours a day when I was done with school homework or chores from about the age of 10 to 14 years old. And I didn't like watching television. Uh, It was just maybe I think I was a contemplative, but I didn't know it as a a young As a young child, I didn't know I was a contemplative, but I would go outside. We had to frequently cut wood, even on like Christmas Day or Thanksgiving, so that my dad had gas to go to work because it was like 40 miles away. So we would cut wood. And so I was always outside in all kinds of weather, except for lightning. I loved being outside. I, you know, sometimes when there was like, if the house was loud or chaotic, I'd like, run outside and hide under a bush and look outside from it, you know. And what I didn't realize is that I have the words for it now, but my Christian imagination was being formed. I had a sense of God close to me all of the time. I I looked at the world through the lens of scripture, through the lens of the Bible, but I didn't know that when I was doing that. I wasn't setting out to like cultivate my own Christian imagination, but that happened. And I also have to say that I would watch my abuelita who had a third grade education and she had to drop out of school because her mom died in childbirth and she had to join the family and raising money. But she would always try to sound out the words in Spanish. Um, She had like a Catholic Bible and she would read it aloud every single day. And that really spoke to me. And I thought to myself, well, if Mm. abuela, if that's important to her, then I'm going to read the Bible too. And so God was always on my mind and, you know, thinking about the Lord, how to live like him, you know, trying to speak to others about him. I didn't grow up in an evangelical culture, any kind of really. I'm the one that went to church. I'm the one that took my siblings to church. I'm the one that tried to speak to my parents about the gospel. Mm. Um, Abuela, I shouldn't say abuela. I mean, they were very God, I should say, respectful of God in my family. It wasn't antithetical to the gospel. It's just they didn't go to church. Um, Mm. It's only in looking back that I see how that formed me, how scripture and nature, silence and solitude formed me for, oh, probably, let's see, at least eight to 10 years of my life. Gotcha. So you were kind of a natural contemplative and, and thinking Godward, even as a young, young woman, that's, that's amazing. That's so cool. So in, in the book, you talk about the, the Greek word kenosis, which means self-emptying, um, comes from Philippians 2, that uh, Christ emptied himself in the form of a servant. And, and you show that this was actually the way of Jesus always, like it, it was the way of Jesus, it was the way of Mary, it was the way of the disciples. Let's go a little deeper into that, because it's such an important word and concept uh, in, in that chapter in the book. Yeah, so... As I mentioned earlier, Jesus um, was self-emptying. Now, I have to 
say that with a caveat now, because sometimes when people hear that, and I knew it as I was writing it, that people think, well, are you subjecting yourself to abuse? Are you letting yourself be abused? So before Mm -hmm. I go on, I want to say to those that might be listening is that, you know, if you're in an abusive situation, I'm not, um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about kind of non-abusive circumstances um, of emptying uh, because sometimes people view emptying as like never having boundaries or standing up for yourself. That's not what I mean. Um, Jesus was firm and confident and humble all at the same time. But I just noticed that God, it just shocks me whenever I think about it, that he left everything, you know, riches will never know. Uh, maybe in heaven, even when then we might not know for billions of years, even a little bit of it, but um, to become a person, God, the God man, to become poor. Like why, I always wonder like, why didn't he go to the palaces or like the main cities like, you know, Alexandria or Rome or, you know, the big cities of the empire. He wasn't born in a palace, but to poor people. It really shocks me too. One of my favorite parts about scripture and the Christmas story is that the angels appeared to shepherds, the lowest mm-hmm. people on the social hierarchy at the time. The angels didn't appear to, you know, big cities and towns declaring Jesus's birth. And I'm just fascinated with the fact that God came as a poor man and mm-hmm. had a poor mother. And I think part of that's though, so he, he he couldn't say he was relying on riches or the esteem of the masses or any kind of thing to buoy him up except for his trust and confidence in God. He, if you want to put it this way, <laughs> in the world's eyes, he would, he's a failure, but he didn't get anything he had because of riches or um, reputation or family pedigree. And right. so even in his birth, and being born into poverty, he took the lowest. Um, and he was in a, he was born in an occupied territory. And he spoke to the societal outcast. He touched them and let, let them touch him. And even the disciples he chose, um, as uh, Ray Vanderlaan talks about, you know, they were the ones that didn't make it. They were the ones that weren't chosen by other rabbis. And he tells us, you know, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And so I'm just fascinated, fascinated, fascinated that, you know, he didn't destroy Pilate when his disciples told him, you know, these, these villages aren't accepting you. Let us call down fire from heaven and destroy them. He's like, no, when Peter wanted to chop off Malchus's or did kill Malchus, (laughs) he did chop off his ear. Jesus restored Malchus's ear. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And even when he was tempted in the wilderness, the devil's like, do this and this and this, and I will give you everything. Jesus chose to despise worldly accolades and wealth so that he could, I think, be open to what God had for him. Because if we fill our stuff with, you know, acclaim and fame and celebrity and money and make those our gods, we leave no room for God inside of us. So we emptied ourselves of all those things in the world that call us, that that tempt us to find our esteem in them. But if we do like Jesus, if we empty ourselves of these things, we'll be open to the life of God. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, Marlene, I appreciate that caveat you started with because 
it isn't that we're, we're called to be, uh, you know, to be abused, to be taken advantage of. Um, you know, that's, that's the great thing about kenosis. It's self-emptying. Like he, cho- he chose to do it. He wasn't forced. Yes. And, um, and he comes, that, the, the, the great uh, paradox of it is Jesus comes from great power, right? I mean, and I think you just mentioned that. He, he was the cre- creator and sustainer of the universe, as we learn in Colossians 1. He created everything. He could have, he, he had, and that, even Philippians 2, where we get the word kenosis, it says, though he was in the form of God, and that doesn't mean like he was kind of God. But he, this is God emptying himself. That's what's so, you know, the, the greatest power in the universe yes. becomes humble. And that's what's so beautiful. And your, your chapter does a fantastic job of getting at that uh, all, away, all across the, the entire, what I call the Christ event the, from the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and so forth, which is really, really wonderful. In fa- and, and then, of course, the next chapter, Down Low with Jesus, you show how he was actually dependent which I found fascinating um, to think about that. And you even mentioned that Jesus as, as an infant, of course, we know that the helplessness of an infant, but uh, I think you even said, you know, dependent on his mother's milk to survive. Yes. And uh, I mean, is that an amazing thought that the creator of the universe is dependent on, in this case, Mary, and then lives this life of dependence? What moved you to write that chapter? Because there's so much good stuff in there. I feel like the Gospels levels the playing field. What's so beautiful about the Gospel that it, you know, he had, Jesus had rich followers like Joseph of Arimathea that took him down off of the cross because if he was left on the cross to die, he would have, you know, Rome would have just thrown him like on a dump heap somewhere and he would have been pecked at by the birds, his body, right? He was even dependent in death, right? Because he depended yeah. on John to take care of his mother. He, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, uh, I believe, um, right. buried him. He, I mean, he didn't have his own tomb even. He had the tomb of a rich man that had converted, I think, I believe, to him. And yeah. so every step of the way when Jesus was born, you know, I have three, three daughters and I did breastfeed him for a while, about as long as I could. But so I understand that. And I also thought about, you know, children across the world who, if their mom is sick or something happens, they have no access to the doctor or hospitals and they will die if they can't, if their moms can't feed them. And so Jesus was in a very vulnerable position, even in his birth, but all throughout his life. And obviously he depended on, on the father. Um, I think about too at the Garden of Gethsemane when he, I call it the worst night of his life, right? You know, if there's a way out of this, can I get out? He was dependent on the company of his disciples, right? And in their humanity, they fell asleep. So I, I'm just struck by the fact that Jesus's entire life, he was dependent on people. He was dependent on women and other people to uh, feed him and, and provide for his ministry too. And also he's dependent on us. I don't know why, but God depends on us to share the good news of the gospel and to embody the same things he did so that others might know about him. And so those are kind of the things I'm struck by and I can just continue to marvel at and wonder. Well, I think that's what your book does so well. I mean, even in its title, The Way Up is is down, right? And and that is, that's kenosis, right? He came down into the, this form of a servant and then lived this dependent life and gave of himself. And that's the way. 
I mean, yeah. that's, it's right there in the title. The way, the way of Jesus is that way. And it's not the way of, of power and might and force and violence. That's just, that's not the way. Right. Um, well, I love chapter five. I think it's my favorite chapter, <laughs> the one on the transfiguration. And, um, and I love the epigraph quote from Deborah Smith. I'm going to read that. I want to practice looking at people as though it were God looking at them to be a mirror of God's loving gaze. This requires me to be truly present to whoever is in front of me. I, I love that. And in a recent episode, I talked about what I call the mirror effect, which comes from 2 Corinthians 3.18, which is my, my new favorite verse, where we, we, we look into the mirror and see the face of Christ. Yes. And then we discover by degrees who we are. And then I love that quote from Deborah Smith, because then we become that mirror. And in that recent podcast, I tell the story that you tell about Valentina, which I want you to tell that story, uh, even though our listeners will have heard it because I told it. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, thank when you. she when she's about God looking happy. So, yeah. So I was staring at her. My three year old daughter, Valentina, um, caught me staring at her. This is the time where I was at home for a while. And she's like, Mom, why are you looking at me that way? Why are you looking so happy at me? And you know, those were the words that she could choose. She could see the delight of mm. my eyes on her. Nothing in particular. She didn't do anything, nothing. I'm just in awe at her existence and her little face and body and mind and interests. And I thought in that moment, because God looks happy at you. I wanted to her to know that God looks happy at her, like God's delight the way I talked to her, the way I wanted to grow up is that God delights in you and he loves you dearly. And I wanted her to live from that love. So she, she's like, then God looks happy at me, at you, at daddy and everyone. Yeah. I'm like, God looks happy at everyone, but he loves you. God looks happy at us. Yes. God looks at us with eyes of delight. And I think some people have grown up in, um, for whatever reasons and denominations or households where they feel like God's angry and wants to strike them dead. If they make the wrong decision, uh, they're full of shame. I mean, God looks happy at us, even in our sin. He still loves us. He wants us to turn towards him, but he doesn't despise us. And I think some people live as though God despises them or can barely stand them. And so um, I think it's very important that when we encounter people, that they would know that God looks happy at them. It's such a great, yeah. I love that. I love that story. I love that phrase. I love her, her imperfect grammar. Yes. Um, you know, when my son Jacob was little, I've told this story on the podcast that when he was little, I think probably about that same age, three or four, maybe he, and he just looked at me, dad, he said, are you happy about me? Oh, <laughs> you know, and his grammar was, and I wanted to correct his grammar. Like, well, that's not, but I didn't, I just went that, what a, that the longing of his heart, for his father to be happy about him. Oh. And so when I read your story, I went, oh, that's so good. You know, that Valentine was the same way. I mean, you mean God's looking happy at us? And it's yes. just, it, it tells that that deep need in our souls for that. And I totally agree with you, Marlene, about, I mean, that's been much of my life's work has been trying to help correct really toxic God narratives. That's right. Because a lot, many people do, and they just, myself included, I, I picked up some pretty bad narratives about God that he was angry, at the very least, just disappointed most of the time. Yeah. So the idea of God, you know, smiling, God being happy um, is a challenge. So here's a maybe a little bit more personal question. How do you try to 
do that for others, give that happy look to others, uh, you know, to affirm their existence? I think, you know, like your books, The Good and Beautiful God, all the things that you've written about too. And, you know, I think you referred to it too when Dallas Willard was in South Africa looking at the ocean and just thinking about, you know, how wonderful God is. Um, yeah. I, I think that it's hard to do if we don't understand that ourselves, but not impossible. I just try to, I think the best I can is to be present to other people. Um, for example, you know, I'm in a PhD program and I don't think any of the, there may be one person that might, one or two people that might profess to be Christians, but they're just love, lovely people. And I don't expect, I think expectations, one thing, I don't expect people that don't follow Jesus to act like mature Christians or Christians at all. And I, uh, and I think, I don't know, I just look at the world. I just see the goodness in people. Yes, there's evil. There is evil, but it's, I think eliciting the goodness from people, you know, just, I don't know if it's a spiritual gift to like Barnabas, the encourager, but just pulling out the goodness that I see in people. So sometimes I say, you know, eulogize people while, while they're alive. If there's something I, I admire yeah. about someone or appreciate about someone, I tell them whether it's in a tweet, a letter in word, uh, you know, however I can um, communicate that I see this in you. That's really beautiful or good. I also like John Wesley's uh, when he talks, you know, do the best you can to whoever you can and do no harm. Uh, mm -hmm. So I try to conduct myself in that way, although imperfectly. And the other way I think, Jim, is that I, and I talk about this in the book, that people that might be on the society's lowest hierarchy, whether it's the disabled, the poor, uh, it, it depends. I guess we have our different hierarchies. I try to put myself in a position, I try to think, well, what can I learn from them? Or anyone, what can I learn? Actually, anyone, what can I learn from mm -hmm. you? Everyone has something to offer. What is it? So those are some of the ways that, and also I hope that when I actually look at people with my eyes, that they would see delight mm -hmm. and not uh, kind of a attitude or errors like, I can't stand you. Um, I'm done with you. Can you move on now? I'm impatient with you. <laughs> can you just get out of my face? Um, even if I'm rushing somewhere. Now, obviously, we don't do that perfectly. But, you know, I try to think, how do I treat people when I'm rushing or when I have to get somewhere? Or, you know, like C.S. Lewis talks about the interruptions that are our lives. Mm -hmm. I could do better with my own family. So I don't want to come off as I'm like some perfect saint or anything. <laughs> so <laughs> It's always hardest in our own family, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is a challenge. But yeah, I love that. And that's that's for me, that's the practice that I've tried to incorporate into my life is to, and you said it so well, to be, to be present with people, to listen to people, to bless people. Uh, Dallas talks so much about blessing. Yes. It's one of the things I picked up from all my time with him was, was the, the importance of that because words are powerful and to, to offer a blessing, a benediction, a good word mm -hmm. to someone is, is really profound. And, uh, you know, he certainly did that for me. Uh, and he, he lived that out. And that was, mm -hmm. was such a wonderful, wonderful thing. I remember when I, when I finished uh, the Good and Beautiful series before the latest book that's now um, coming out, but the, the first three books in the series. And we were together in, uh, it was San Antonio. 
Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen him in quite a while and I hadn't seen him since the, the books were completed and so forth. And, and, uh, I was, I was teaching a workshop about 200 people and he just walked into the room. He just interrupted, came right up to me, looked me, put his hands on my shoulders, looked me in the eye and said, you did it, James. You really did it. Wonderful. You know, I'll tell you that just, my soul came alive when, when that blessing was given to me. So I'm with you. Blessings presence, listening are so profound. There are ways to be that, that mirror back that, uh, you know, that God is happy about and we're happy about, uh, that they exist, which is mm-hmm. wonderful. Well, speaking of Dallas, another practice he taught me that, that, uh, when I saw that chapter title, chapter eight, Me- Memento Mori, I went, oh my, yeah, this is, talk about that, that approach, that practice. Yeah. So Memento Mori, uh, I don't know, Mori, um, I don't know how they say Atlanta, but it's remembrance of your death. And I, again, I don't know like what circumstances or what is it if you're like, if you're a poorer person or you've been around difficulties, I don't know why, but all my life, a lot of my life, you know, I've thought to myself, you know, I'm going to die. Um, you know, just the other day I'm like, oh, you know, I'm 43 years old, soon to be 44. I, I don't, I can't assume that I have a long time to live. I mean, we, we can die at any age, but in my mind, I've always had like death before me. And then I found out that it was actually a practice of the ancients, you know, different uh, monks and nuns and people in ancient, uh, well, I should say ancients, um, people do it now too, I think. Uh, But they would have, you know, either a skull on their desk or, you know, one Pope had a coffin in his, uh, one of his rooms, St. Francis would you know, draw a little skull when he would write to people. And they always had the fact that they were going to die just at the subconscious level or right there at the top thinking about it. And I think if we remember our deaths, and in the chapter, I write about how there was like a series of deaths, my husband and my now seven-year-old daughter, but she was much younger, were hit by, you know, on the side by someone that was, you know, on their phone, I think, and they didn't see my husband pull out. And uh, I was the first one on the scene to get them. And he didn't know if my youngest daughter was dead because it hit it right on her side, Isabella. And then, you know, several friends uh, died, Sean's uncle. And then I didn't think I wrote about Rachel Held Evans um, dying, but um, also other people we knew that were young that died all within like one week, not Rachel, but the rest of them all within a week. And so I had death on my mind. Um, You know, my own mom died June 27th of uh, 2021. So I'm thinking about it in a more profound way. Mm. And I think when we remember that we're going to die, or as it says in the Psalms um, attributed to Moses, let us number our days. I think it helps us put things in perspective. You know, if I'm going to die, you hear this all the time, you know, when you die, are you going to want to, you know, are you going to be glad that you spent so many times, so much time in the office or at work? So I think remembering our death helps us put our lives in lives into perspective and helps us determine what's most valuable. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, I'm adjuncting a seminary class from Northeastern Seminary for Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. And one of their uh, online, one of their, one of the assignments is to, you know, write your own obituary. Mm -hmm. And I was taking my oldest daughter to school. And I said to her, you know, this is what I'm telling my students they need to do is write their own obituary. I said, if I died, what would you say about me? You know, I was kind of like, what would you say about me? Mm -hmm. 
And she said that you loved people and always tried to help them. And I was like, hmm, you know, my heart was like, okay, you know, so glad. Like what? Because I wanted to see what would strike her at first, you know. So I just snapped my fingers. Like what would strike her without having told her before? What would she, you know, what would she write in my obituary? Yeah, it is an ancient practice. And uh, I remember when Dallas first taught about it, um, he, he said that I think the earliest practice of the memento mori was um, was the that he knew of anyway uh, were the uh, the emperors in Rome. Oh. That after they would when they would come into into Rome in a big parade, you know, to celebrate some military victory, that the, a servant would be walking right behind them and saying, "Memento mori, memento mori," oh. meaning "Remember you're going to die. Remember you're going to die," which is a way to balance out because we want to think about fame and power and and living on forever. It's like, no, you're, you're going to die. <laughs> so it's, I remember when he told that story, I thought that's a strange thought, but the saints have done it from, from, from the beginning. It's, it's such an important practice to just to remember that. And to, it, it does, you know, put your life into perspective, which is fantastic. Well, Marlene, it has been so fun to talk with you about The Way Up is Down. It's a wonderful book. I recommend it to all these people that are listening today. It's, it's really, it, it just frames the Christian way so well. And you're going to be at the Apprentice Gatherings in September, last week in September. And I'm excited that you're going to come be a part of that. It's And it's, it'll be your first time coming, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm super excited. Um, I thank you, too, because your own work has uh, helped form me. So it's a real pleasure uh, to yeah be going to the Apprentice Conference and just being around people that are desiring to become more like Jesus and spurring one another on. That is exactly what happens at that every year. It's just, it's, it's my favorite week of the year, and I'm so glad you're going to be a part of it. Well, thank you for being on the podcast today. It has been wonderful. Thank you, Marlena. Yes, it's been a joy. Thank you. I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website, ApprenticeInstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.